Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk about the engineering design process, as well as marketing tricks, optical mix, and popsicle sticks. The Engineering Commons explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of field or industry. Join Adam, Brian, Carmen, and Jeff as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 109, Design Process, May 26th, 2016. So, Carmen, do you consider yourself to be a good designer? Uh, yeah, without bragging too much, I, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm the best in the world. I certainly have plenty to learn. But uh, in the context of my day job, yeah, I can design a buck regulator circuit for an Intel vCore application like it's nobody's business. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been there at Intersil now for almost five years, and I've done quite a few designs. Um, wow. you know, I'm starting to develop that engineering intuition we talk about quite often so I can, mm-hmm. you know, look at numbers and say, yeah, I think that'll work or no, I think it won't. I have a pretty good idea where I'm starting from. And instead of just poking and prodding and praying when I twiddle some knobs, you know, everything falls <laughs> in the spec. I know which knobs to twiddle and by roughly how much. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I usually can produce a, a working design in a, a short period of time. Cool. Yeah. And how much of your development as a designer relied on theory and how much of it is just the experience to give you that that intuitive sense? Uh, mine is mostly just the experience. Um, I suppose if you came and you knew the theory very well, you could come from the other way and go theory down to experience. But I, I learned from the bottom up because I didn't have a lot of power electronics experience before I started this uh this job. So I learned everything as I went. So, you know, blowing things up mm-hmm. on the bench and doing a lot of bad designs <laughs> taught me what makes a good design. And now I'm, I'm backfilling the theory as I go. Oh, neat. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, so in your uh, firm, are there a lot of designers or is design a fairly rare job opportunity? Uh, well, in the IC design business, there's quite a few designers, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but I guess it's what we want to call a, a design problem. I mean, I'm designing the application circuits. I'm not designing the ICs themselves. I'm, I would make a very right. poor IC designer at the moment in yeah. terms of making a circuit work over process and temperature and corners and all the stuff I only did in the very basic sense back in college. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I guess it, it depends on what you're designing, too. I know there, there are people that uh, work in, in the auto industry or the aviation industry, and they may be a designer in the sense that they get to design one bracket that holds you know two pieces together. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly different than the designer that designs the car bodies. Yes. You mean a single person doesn't design an airplane anymore? <laughs> <laughs> no. Not since the right days. Yeah. Uh, no, I guess I'm kind of lucky in that regard, if you want to consider it, uh, because it's such a nice application and Intel sets a lot of my specs. Um, I have very definitive targets where you either hit this number or you don't. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if you're just designing a, you know, a digital camera or something, like, yeah, sure, you have to meet, you know, the emission specs and make sure you're not broadcasting anything you shouldn't for whatever reason, if it's an internet connected camera, but, 
you know, oh, should the flash capacitor charge in one or two milliseconds? Like, yeah, that's kind of an open-ended design decision, and I really don't have those in my job. It's you pass this big book of specs, and, you know, <laughs> that that's the end of it. Yeah. None of them yeah. are negotiable. <laughs> right. Well, at least in, in my world, you know, in my career, I worked with a lot of engineers who wanted to be designers, but that was sort of a tough job to get a hold of. It, it you know, the percentage I would say of people that were actually doing design work was more like five, six, seven, eight percent, you know, yeah. fairly small percentage. Everybody else was doing support work. Somebody had to go out and make sure that the parts were ordered and make sure that the parts passed QA and make sure that they were delivered and make sure that the, uh, whoever's doing assembly did the assembly. And, you know, there were just, there were all these support processes that had to happen to put the product out the door, but there was just a lesser need for people actually doing design work. Yeah. I guess coming from that regard, you know, in school, all they teach you is design. And, uh, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of the couple hundred people I graduated with, I'm sure similar percentages are, are doing design and, you know, similar doing support roles. I guess you consider myself a support role, seen as everything I did was transistor level design or, you know, stuff like that. But I'm, right. still, I'm still doing new circuits, so I'm going to let myself in with designers. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Well, and, and so uh, I think that it is somewhat, at least for a lot of engineers, I think it's difficult to get into design. You know, if we go by design as in that's your title, um, yeah, it's real hard to get into IC design as an IC designer fresh out of college. Um, you know, you have typically have to have, uh, you know, a very specific master's degree with, you know, some design internship experience. Um, a lot of people mm-hmm. take the, you know, start an apps or test and then move into design, which is right. sort of the path I'm on. I don't know if I'll ever go into design or if I'll stay in apps. And <laughs> I don't know. It's open-ended. I'm still young. Right. And so uh, in school, did was, did you have a class specifically talking about the design process, or was this something you were just expected to sort of pick up on during your class projects? Uh, pretty much just pick on up or pick up during your your process or you know during the class and the projects. Yeah, they might give you broad strokes on how to design something, but nothing you know completely from scratch. No, nothing like that. Yeah, my, mine was very much the same way where you were given projects and expected to sort of figure out the design process on your own, but there wasn't a lot of instruction about the design uh, procedure, you know, the steps that you might go through. Yeah, no, just broad strokes, do some research, sketch out ideas, move to simulation, prototype, but there's nothing telling you all those steps and how they're concurrent with one another and everything like that. Yeah. What, what about you, Brian? Uh, I remember it being drilled that kind of each uh, each class in uh, electrical engineering was kind of a teaching point of, you know, these are the various steps of the design process or a design process. There is no the design process. Right. Um, you know, and let's, let's evaluate this demo circuit that you're designing mm-hmm. uh, from that perspective. Or when you go through controls, let's 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 validate this model of a control system that you have designed presumably and then it fails <laughs> <laughs> right right well and so i i think two things here 
One is, it is in many fields, I think, difficult to get into engineering design, even though that's why many, I think, went into engineering, because that's how they saw themselves, is designing cool stuff. And secondly, the process of engineering design, that is the steps one goes through and what it's really like, and hint up front, it's it's a pretty messy process usually, that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. So I thought in this episode, we would talk about the design process. And and to start along that uh, that path, I thought I'd point out that one of the problems is we have so many definitions for design. So you'll hear about design engineers or you'll hear designers. There's, you know, graphic design. Uh, there's all these different types of design and and for many of us, if someone says, you know, are you working on a design, that is solving a problem. And, and then the manner in which it's solved isn't so much important. Uh, there are others who, when you talk about design, immediately say, well, you're solving the problem for people. And so that's a, a different, you know, viewpoint uh, than just solving the problem. So I might be, uh, I might be having, happy solving the problem for making it a, as, uh, as we talked about in the last episode, uh, you know, the engineering mindset is you want to make the system perfect. And so whether it involves people or not, I'm happy if it's very automated and uh, it works as it's supposed to, whereas others who consider themselves designers would say, no, 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 you're not taking into consideration the importance of the human element. Hmm. Yes, there's there's many schools of thought for uh, <laughs> all those wonderful classifications. <laughs> Does it work? Is it perfect? Yeah. And, yes. You know, I, I can't help but – am I the only person in the podcast that's watching uh, Silicon Valley? The new season, yes. Yeah, I think you are. Well – I bet you the clip is on YouTube and we can include it in our show notes, but there's a beautifully hilarious scene where a designer comes in to help them design a rack mountable system. So it's just a box for some sort of 19 inch rack mountable device, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be in a server farm. Nobody's ever going to see it kind of situation. And so the designer comes in and kicks up a PowerPoint presentation to go over concepts. And he just starts showing the engineer pictures of like volcanoes and jungles and, you know, cities. And the guy's like, what, what is this? I thought we were going to talk about boxes. Well, I need you, I need us to agree on a, a, uh, oh, like a visual concept for, for this. So once you see a picture you like, I can design that box that nobody's <laughs> ever going to see for you. Right. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to one of your earlier points, Jeff, uh, about why people get in design, you know, for engineering, it's, you know, sure. in the media and everything, you kind of see engineers, you know, they talk about the design process, but they, they show you designing an Iron Man suit or an airplane engine or, you know, some robots and, you just design that and that's the the end product but in reality there's a lot of design in the support roles as well you know i mean the air, airplane engines have to be tested and you have to design the test system and yes you're not designing the engine itself but you sure know a hell of a lot about the engine and you know how to test the engine and how to determine if it's a good engine to begin with um yeah and the you know the media will kind of just lump that all because you know you're trying to tell a story. You can't show all the hundreds of engineers involved in that. They'll just have the engineer who designs, right. tests, prototypes, does all that stuff. But in reality, yeah, you might do the initial designing and have a hand in prototyping. But when you get the big 
747 engine built, you know, you're probably not going to be the one pushing the button to see how it, uh, you know, fires up for the first time. You'll be getting that test report and you might be there, but that's all done on someone else's hard work and their design skills. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it's something that is often poorly portrayed in the media and in movies. They show designs as monolithic systems, like the jet engine you just mentioned. A jet engine's a thing that somebody designs, or maybe there's a design team for the jet engine. Whereas I now I find it very hard to even think of an example of something that isn't under this under umbrella. It's a system of systems. So you don't have a jet engine developer. You have a first stage compressor. I'm probably wrong with their segmentation along these lines where you have a first stage compressor developer. You have a blade, you know, an, an outer fan blade developer, which is probably different than the people who are doing the high temperature, high pressure stuff in the core of the, uh, in the core of the engine, people who handle the bearings for the system. Like, right. It's, so it's so segmented and subdivided in, even inside of that modular unit, something you think would be monolithic like an engine. You know, it's probably dozens of different design teams. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Same is true for the motherboards I work on. Like, yeah, I could tell you oh, a yeah. lot about the power section for the processor and the peripheral rails, but you want to speak to, you know, the high-speed Surdy stuff like on the RAM and everything? I don't know. That was someone else's job. <laughs> <laughs> programming the processor still another guy's job to, to mm-hmm. laying out you know if there's integrated antennas or anything for bluetooth or wi-fi like that that's still yet another design team right well and i'm, I'm thinking about uh, something as simple as a ball bearing there's there's somebody who's worrying about the manufacturing process to make the balls as spherical as possible there's a group working about the you know metallurgy to make the right materials uh, i'm sure there's a group you know plating or finishing as you mentioned earlier, Carmen, testing, there are all kinds of different groups, even to that one little product. And that bearing may be just one small component of a much larger system, such as the turbine engine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who's to say where the design stops? Like, are, are you, is the actual design of this new revolutionary frictionless bearing just as important as the, uh, you know, the new test methodology that had to be designed or the new process flow to get more of them out per minute. Like someone still designed each of those, you know, stages and, you know, various Mm -hmm. support structures, I guess, for lack of a better word here. Um, Right. You know, it just depends on how you want to define design. It's a very nebulous term. It is. And and to make it even worse, we use it both as a noun. So our design, we talk about our specification of a system – uh, or we use it as a verb, the process of coming up with that specification. So it is, it is as you pointed out, is a very nebulous term. Uh, I, I came across a definition that apparently came from the uh, the folks at Xerox, their Palo Alto Research Center, and they made the decision that to the distinction of design versus engineering was design was moving minds, while engineering was moving atoms. <laughs> so if that's the case then we would not we would i guess we'd say we engineered a turbine blade because i don't think you really design you don't you're not trying to change a mind i don't think with the design of a turbine blade right i guess yeah i don't agree with that definition of design that's it that, that was <laughs> yeah. some businessman who was making that design 
The only thing more mind-numbingly stupid than that is referring to designers as creatives. All right. Oh, I, oh that's you, a whole this other is, can of worms, is it? Don't you have to be creative to do a news design? No, but is this not a term you guys have heard? Uh, not me, no. Not not in my business. You know, I, I've seen um, references to designers more like architects in, in my field where it, it's really the creative process and the engineers there to make it work. Yeah. So this is a popular term that is largely inside of, I would say, media and uh, uh, commercial product design, mm-hmm. industrial design maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen it leak its way into other engineering fields where, you know, no, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a copywriter. I'm a creative. I'm not a gra- uh, drafter. I'm a creative. You know, it's 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 so affirmational that uh, it makes you want to puke. <laughs> Trust me, it's there, and it's. It, <laughs> I believe you. It's obnoxious. Hmm. Interesting. Well, so in the uh, in the area of design, those who study this, and again, I'm not an expert. I've not studied it. Just done enough research to be able to uh, talk about it a little bit this evening. Uh, there are, I'm sure there are many models, but there are, say, two big competing models. There's the rational model of design uh, where everything is dependent upon technical rationality. And there's the action-centric model of design where everything is based on improvised uh, methods and uh, emotion, whatever, you know, whatever the designer feels like doing. So we have the rational model where you take definite steps in a scientific manner, and we have the action-centric where you do whatever you want to do to get the thing done. So to compare these two in a, in a rational model, one, the designers attempt to optimize a design candidate for known constraints and objectives. So I guess it kind of assumes that you actually know what you're trying to do when you start. Two, the design process is plan-driven. You know, you have a roadmap and you follow the roadmap. And three, the design process is understood in terms of a discrete sequence of stages. So you go from stage one to stage two to stage three. Now you may loop back, you may iterate, but the stages are fairly distinct. In comparison, in the action-centric model, one, the designers use creativity and emotion to generate design candidates. Two, the design process is improvised. And three, there's no universal sequence of stages. Analysis, design, and implementation are contemporary and inextricably linked. So those who are familiar with software development may consider the rational model to be more the waterfall process uh, and the action-centric model to be more like the agile process. And, and I'll just point out that I think both models have their, their place. They both provide some insight. But the rational model does have the shortcomings of, first, designers don't work this way, uh, that the empirical evidence has demonstrated that designers do not act as the rational model suggests. And two, the rational model is dependent upon known constraints. And goals are often unknown when a design project begins and their requirements and constraints continue to change throughout the process. So with that in mind, have your experiences been more like the rational model 
or the action-centric model of design? Definitely rational for me. Okay, um, good. Partly because I have that big book of Intel specs I have to meet, but also, you know, designing with one of our new regulators, it, it's very much a process. You you start and you optimize this parameter, which influences the next one, so there's really no point in going out of order. Um, mm-hmm. So for stuff like that, it's pretty, pretty darn rational. Um, you know, if I'm trying to hit some more more up in the air target, like, you know, minimize the output capacitance or layout restrictions, you know, PCB area, then, then it could be a little bit more uh, action centric as you, you're, you get a little more creativity and you have to keep in mind a few vague constraints like, sure, I can minimize this to be like two capacitors that no one's ever going to pay for, but <laughs> that, that wouldn't be a very good design. So you blow out the space, but lower the cost and trade things off for one another, as opposed to, I have to make this resistor, this value to hit this spec. Mm -hmm. I would say I worked, um, I would say the aerospace world is very much of a rational model. Mm -hmm. And I agree with some of the criticisms I'm seeing in our sheet, but, uh, I, everything is phase gate driven, uh, extremely planned, uh, whereas I would say for the past four years or so, I've been working at three or four years, I've been working in much more of an action centric model. Mm-hmm. And I think if I was being honest, I think we're always working in an action centric model. We just try to f- pretend like we're working in a rational model. <laughs> action model with constraints. Yeah. Adam, are you pretty wide open? You just, you know, I feel like a left would go here. You know what? No traffic lights. They'll figure it out. <laughs> you know, um, I would say, you know, especially hearing your guys' experience, I think my day-to-day sense tends to be kind of in the middle. There are definitely a, a distinct process, and there's definitely some pressure to move more that direction. But the reality is things come up, things have to change, things move back and forth. Um, so th- there's kind of this theoretical rational model, but that's not what the reality is. And so it's more trying to force things into something that looks like that and just getting the job done. It's this weird cross. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, Carmen, it's not about necessarily figuring out where the left turn goes. It's about, I mean, because for that, if I was making it, if we were stretching that analogy back to electrical engineers, it would be a comparator versus a linear op amp. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's intuitively obvious which one you'd use in a given application. Um, just like I'm sure a lot of those decisions for a civil engineer would be likewise intuitive, but it's more the, it seems like there's, it's more about the consensus building and the checks on process. So you designed your left turn. Have you now then gone and taken it door to door and shown everyone your left turn and gotten their input? You know, there's an input fit stage and then there'll be a, you know, a governor's stage where everyone uh, reviews your left turn and says, you know, I would have done it this way. And a dozen people in a room all with conflicting views on things all give you nonsensical advice. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I'd say there's there's that process, and you start off with a um, you kind of run through a design real quickly, and you have something that could literally be drawn with crayon, mm-hmm. and, and that is all the better. That's all the better you want to be at that point, um, and you get something that's pretty good drawn with crayon or digital crayon, and then you run it around and, and you you get everybody to kind of buy in on that, and, and you vet it out, and you make any tweaks at that high level, and then you go to the next level down and you start fitting it into the real world and and matching grades and and meeting all these constraints and all the details and, and in that way so you, you do have that that rational model of your there are very staged processes but within each of those it's it's very action centric and you're kind of going through a full design um a design process three or four times at least in um the the area i work mm-hmm yeah, I think if you have a known path, you know, if you're going from point A to point B over and over again, we are a light bulb factory, you know, and, you know, we only design mm-hmm. light bulbs. I think it's really easy to do stuff like that. But if, if you're ever doing anything that's outside of your core competency, it falls apart pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was doing special machinery design, Part of the problem in that business is you never get to do the same machine twice. Mm-hmm. Right? If, if you're really lucky, they come back and, and they, they say to you six years later, oh, that machine you built for us way back, you know, six years ago, we want something that's kind of like that, but different. Yeah. I mean, that, that's about as close as you get yeah. to, to rebuilding the same machine twice. But that's a systems. I mean, and, and that's everywhere that I've been. It's even, even the thing, even the places where I sell discrete widgets, it's mm-hmm. always a system. Yeah. And the systems where you get the, you know, because it's not a discrete component, it's not a capacitor, even though it may even look identical to the 10 devices that you sold previously, mm-hmm. internally, they're all substantially different. Yeah. Uh, as a result of software, as a result of interface, and as a result of requirements. I want that, I want that box to, you know, so that I don't have to repay the recurring design cost. I want that identical box, which you have with these small tweaks, which necessitate an entire new design. Right. Right. Small change. It shouldn't take that long. Yeah. Well, and, and that's why I would almost never, I'm trying to quickly think through my, my business history, but I don't think I ever took a contract where I didn't say, well, let's put a small amount of amount of money up front for us to work through these initial issues because in that first 10, 20, 30, 40 hours of work of research, design work, whatever you want to call it, you would come up with these, well, here are the big issues, you know, here's what other people have tried and, and here's, here are the probable uh, stumbling blocks or, or obstacles that we have to overcome. You know, so now that, that now that we're up to speed, now what do we want to do? Because it was it was never the same thing. And so this idea that you can sit down and say, well, from the beginning of the process, you know what the constraints are, baloney. And and I can't tell you how many machines I was halfway through when I'd go, well, look, you we could we could uh, you know you asked for for uh, five thousandths of of accuracy, and I can give you two, but we have to trade off over here. You know the speed will be half of what it, you wanted. And they would go, yes, let's do it. You know, there was always a trade-off coming down the road where that would change the design process. And sometimes it would make a, a dramatic change in, in how the machine ended up. Mm-hmm. 
I'll tell you young engineers, run away from the phrase custom firmware. <laughs> custom anything. <laughs> firmware in general. It's, it's The phrase custom firmware is basically a way for engineers to convince themselves that they're not doing something totally new. The way you can get away with not doing things new is, like, I have a set of building blocks that I, I've got maybe a dozen sheets that I use all the time. And I just can take this building block and plop it in. And I can say, okay, I need this building block, or I need this building block, or I need this building block. And, and so it saves me some time, but it's how do you tie those building blocks together and then in creating that glue between them is unique every single time. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can develop some efficiencies, but if it were just taking and plopping together building blocks or doing the same thing every time, we wouldn't need designers. So, so that's, that's the point, right? If we're all rational, what we call our rational model, then a lot of it would be just, you know, step A, step B, step C, uh, do the process. We'll automate it with software. We don't need, we don't need to hire these expensive engineers. If it's more action centric and there's some creative genius in there where you just can't get rid of the, uh, you know, the human element. Well, that speaks to we as designers are valuable as opposed to just plopping block A and block B together. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to a point too, there's, there's a bit of a cycle, you know, a lot of things start off very action centric. Um, I mean, a few episodes ago, we have Dave, Dave Vandenbot on, and he was talking about, you know, designing with the very first microcontrollers and, you know, geez, you needed a PhD to do it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very action-centric. You're, you're very creative and you're, you know, improvising on the fly because no one has done this before. But, you know, now, you know, any, geez, any eight-year-old can go buy an Arduino and start designing, you know, in the, the high-level sense with it. Um and, you know, moving up to engineers, you know, I don't have to build an op amp every time I want to use one. Um, it's a, a solved problem. There's no need reason to be action centric there. You know, you get your building blocks, like Adam said, and plop those down and you start designing on top of them. Mm-hmm. So, you, you, you know, you eventually, you know, all designs start out action centric. And as they mature, you get things down, you get the process, you get the efficient way of, you know, there's no need to design a new way to invert a signal. We have inverting op amps. Just plop one down, go to town. Um, you know, you get a very rational model then. Like, you know, you have three or four different ways to do it. Pick which one. Move forward. Don't waste time. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, and that sort of leads into... A lot of systems are like that these days, right? They were, were sort of handed pre-engineered solutions, and they go, well, just pick pick one of these options to make things work out the way you want to. And so if you do that, it may be, it may be more time efficient, but it sort of takes us away from what we did in school, which was designing everything from first principles, right? You don't start with, well, here's a, uh, here's Maxwell's equations, or here's Ohm's law, or here's, here's uh, Newton's law. Uh, you start with, well, you have this chip that has all these options, and now you do a little software code or you do a, a, a little manipulation, and something good should happen. But you as the designer no longer know because you've, you've left that in somebody else's hands. Yeah, you hope that there's no bugs in the chip. Right. Hope nothing pops up and bites you in the ass. <laughs> yeah. So, so when, I design, when I design mechanical devices, I feel pretty comfortable because I'm getting to go – 
fairly far back towards first principles. I pretty much know what's going into the device. When I'm designing software, you know, if I'm working with Linux or something, I'm guessing. I'm looking up the the man pages uh, to see what something's supposed to do, and they have all these options. And I haven't a clue what the difference is between the capital O and the capital P option that have some distinction. And I poke around until something works. Now I'm not writing, you know, I'm not writing, you know, medical level code or or aviation level codes. It, I'm just writing stuff for myself, so it's not a big deal. But in that case, I'm not. I'm just acting as a tinkerer. I'm just poking things around until something works, as opposed to doing actual what I would consider engineering design. What, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, if it's something you haven't done before, you know, it's a new area for you. I, I, you know, there's just that not that base level of understanding. Um, I think it would, the responsibility would be on you as an engineer to eventually learn enough to get by. Um, but your your specialty is somewhere else. You can only learn so much about a system. At some point, you're going to just start poking until mm-hmm. it works, and that's usually when you're supposed to hand it off to another another specialist. You know, Adam does roads. He could probably tell you quite a bit about bridges, but if it came to actually designing one, you know, he'd want to hand it off to the experts. Yeah. Same as yep. I could tell you what features I'd like to put on our next generations of chip of chips. Maybe tell you roughly how to put them together, but oh, geez, I'd want someone who actually designs at the transistor level more often than I do to, uh, you know, go through and kick the tires on that design. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and, and we were talking a little bit, Carmen, before we started the podcast about my work with students who are using LabVIEW. And LabVIEW is a wonderful tool, very powerful, you know, you do lots of stuff with it. But I have a problem early on teaching students where they're just connecting blocks together as opposed to sitting down and writing out code, I would rather them writing out, and you can do this in LabVIEW, of course, but you know, I'd rather have them writing out code and, and making sure they understand the details of how to make a process, let's say a filter work, before we get all wrapped up in the excitement of, of having a big GUI that we can, you can click and point and connect things together and have this build this fancy system very quickly. That is useful, and it's wonderful a lot of good engineers do some wonderful things with LabVIEW and I'm not knocking LabVIEW. I'm just saying when you're trying to teach someone at the beginning, I often prefer to have them working at a very elemental level uh, before they get carried away with all the bells and whistles. So when you say design a filter, how would you imagine them doing it? Would it be some sort of a for loop with an, you know, integrator value, some sort of, you know, procedural code? If you ask them to do all the details, they get lost because there's just too much to know. But there's also a conceptual intuition as to what this thing is doing that I think they miss when they're just asked to connect blocks. Yeah, you've got to have them make the blocks. Yes. I mean, I guess then would be, you know, and not knocking your teaching style. I've never taken one of your classes and I only know you through the internet, so I'm assuming you're a good right. teacher here. but. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one one would say that I guess you're you're starting a too high a level tool. You know, maybe do something in C or Python or you know some lower level language that forces them to do more than just connect blocks. But then again, you're trading off the limited course time you have as well. So now they have to learn two systems: MATLAB and C, or LabVIEW and C. Or right. I'd also say though it's. It's one of those things where you wouldn't want them to get lost in the syntax either. Which, if it was in Python or C, it then becomes a learning Python and C kind of enterprise. Yeah. Where, 
I, I mean, I imagine, I, I remember the first time I implemented PID loops in C and I wouldn't say that I was doing any more than implementing, uh, you know, example code the first couple times I did it. I wouldn't say that it clicked in a way that like if I'd done it in lab view, I don't know that it would have been, or Simulink for that matter, I don't know that it would have been that different. Actually, I did it in Simulink at the same time. But, you know, it it's one of those things where I don't think you can have the expectation that they're going to do any more than, say, connecting blocks the first couple times they do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to recognize the fact that each of us has our own means of understanding the world and representing the world. And I try to remember that as, as much fun as I had learning assembly code when I was first introduced to microprocessors <laughs> back in the early, I guess it was late 1970s, early 1980s, somewhere in, in that range. That's not necessarily what is valuable for today's engineers. And so not too many people spend a lot of time writing assembly code these days. A few, of course, uh, and not a lot of people spend you know, it's it's more common that people are not doing single transistor designs, but saying, "Hey, let's pick an IC chip off the off the shelf and and run with that." And so, I do recognize that I have to trade off the level of understanding that I think is important may not be what today's or actually tomorrow's engineers need to be studying today. Well, I personally don't think you can understand an infinite impulse response filter unless it's done in punch cards. <laughs> Um, th- there's a, a value in you know what, what sets engineers in my mind apart from technicians is that that understanding of that that deep fundamental level that yeah okay so you don't use it on a daily basis or maybe you don't ever implement it in in the detailed math but at least that understanding of this is what's happening behind the scenes and whether we like it or not. I think that's a valuable piece of information for engineers to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, again, we, we go back to last week's uh, episode where it talked, you know, we talked about engineers see the world in a distinct and different way. And I, I have, we talked about whether, you know, you're born an engineer or made an engineer. I don't know, but whatever it is, however we become the way we do, whether it's just the, you know, working with other engineers, we, assimilate into that culture. I don't know, but it, it changes the way we see the world. And, and I, I agree with you, Adam. I think that's important. We, we have an insight. We have a perspective on things that other people don't just because we have that engineering mindset. I, I would say too, you know, as you're trying to decide the level of detail, um, you know, you have to look at your role. If you're the system designer, you, you, like you say, you can't get involved in all those details. You just have to know, I need to put a filter here should be low pass with, you know, roughly these specs. I don't care if the designer has to fine tune them by a factor of two, maybe three, who knows. Uh, I just know right here we need a filter, here we need a sensor, you know, here we need some sort of, you know, complex actuator. Um, <laughs> you know, from from the system level design, you've specced it down to the nitty gritty. You can say, I need this bandwidth, this speed, you know, whatever. From the filter designer's perspective, it's, you know, you got the high level, okay, now it's up to me to figure out how this actually is going to work. You know, so you need those people with the different levels of design in mind, you know. So when the designer comes back and says, hey, uh, you know, I actually have the filter. I built this great filter, 
but it, it, you know, wreaks havoc with everything up the line because it's way too fast and, you know, it lets all this noise in or something. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you need someone with the quote unquote less design knowledge who sees the whole picture to kind of smooth everything out and, you know, tell them to dial it back a little bit. Sure. Sure. A good point. So you just get to play around with where you want the design to be, <clears throat> what design is. You're the engineer, you set the spec. But again, we go to it depends on what your management lets you do. Yeah. But when you do get set the spec, that is that is a great power. Well, in terms of what you call a design, sure, we'll, we'll call we'll set the spec to whatever we want. It's our podcast. <laughs> it's whatever the argument needs it to be at that moment. <laughs> right. Design at minute 45 is not a design at minute 20. Cool. Well, so we as engineers, especially if we've had some design experience, have some idea of what this design process looks like. But I was as in the process of trying to get ready for this episode. I was looking at what is being taught to uh, the kids in school that, ha- that have an inter- interest in engineering since there's such this, this big push for, for STEM professions. So I was, I was watching one uh, kid's video on YouTube and, and they said, well, you got to start somewhere when you're trying to learn Jeff, there's no shame in that. Uh, <laughs> and it, it, they said that, the design process is a series of steps that all engineers follow when they're trying to solve a problem. Uh, that may be an, a bit of a oversimplification, but it's a kid's video, so I will give them <laughs> partial credit. Some leeway. Right. <laughs> and if you go to Wikipedia, the, the fountain of all internet knowledge, they say that the engineering design process is a methodical series of steps engineers use in creating functional products and processes. Uh, The process is highly iterative. Parts of the process often need to be repeated many times before another can be entered. And finally, ABET, the, you know, the accreditation uh, group that determines whether schools are have can hand out engineering degrees, uh, use the definition. uh, It is a decision-making process, often iterative, in which the basic sciences, mathematics, and engineering sciences are applied to convert resources optimally to meet a stated objective. So what do you think? Is it a methodical series of steps? And are basic sciences, mathematics, and engineering sciences applied to convert resources optimally during most design processes? Ooh, that optimally asterisk is <laughs> brutal. <laughs> Well, define optimally because, you know, I, I assume where you're going is sometimes um, you just get it done so it works and move on to the next problem. Sure. Sometimes it's time optimal. Sometimes it's cost optimal. Sometimes it's strength optimal. Yeah. And some, yeah. And sometimes it, or usually it's a mixture of all of the above. Yeah, that was one of the things that really confused me when I got into optimal control because by the name, I thought someone had figured out exactly what the system should do. And you just plugged in the optimal control, it would magically fix it. <laughs> uh, and it was with great dismay that I discovered that optimal control only optimized the equation you gave it to optimize. And so it was still up to you as the designer to figure out what your system was supposed to do. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> exactly. Yep. You were going to say something, Carmen? Oh, yeah. In terms of the, you know, efficiently and optimally and everything, um, you know, as you go through the design process, there might be 
a, you know, a great many sub steps that you go through and, you know, you know, heaven help you if you're working through anything with, you know, biological specimens, you know, bacteria or lab rats or something, you know, there might be a hypothesis you have to test and you go through a rigorous set of steps to introduce, you know, your controls and your variables and splice your genes or feed the rats certain food, whatever you got to do. Because, you know, if you don't, then you're going to just get garbage, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So right. as you go through your wild and crazy design process, um, you might take a many very serious, serious, rigid, stepped experiments. And where those results take you could be, you know, up in the air, loosey-goosey, you know, you're buzzing the tower because you're maverick. But, you know, in, in between those great leaps, you're you're doing, you know, optimize processes because you know that's the best way to get results to move you in a new direction Mm -hmm. like everything this is on a spectrum right so there are some people that would what they're doing is very scientific and very programmatic and others that are just doing whatever they feel like on a moment-to-moment basis and and certainly the more that you're trying to do scientific development where you're trying to understand exactly what the the variables are that make something work the way that it does, the more you probably have to follow some sort of, you know, rigid experimental regimen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm drawing flashing back to my senior design because our senior design, we were trying to make a, uh, a platform that fit over our uh, wafer probe station in the lab to probe transistors, you know, on the big silicon wafers. Mm-hmm. And we were designing a system that had very clear cut goals or we could easily point to, you know, an op amp and say, can't use it. The noise floor is too high. You know, we're trying to measure below this. Um, whereas senior design tried to, you know, put a process on the creativity portion. So they're like, well, you have to fill out this stupid grid chart that compares and contrasts <laughs> six op amps. And we're like, yeah, but there's only two that meet the criteria. They're like, well, you have to fill it out anyways. And it, it was, you know, trying to put processes where they didn't belong. Um and yeah, it might work for some of the other design uh, that other students did that were a little more open-ended and you had multiple ways of going out and solving a problem, but ours didn't really fit into the senior design mold they tried to impress on you. And it, right. it caused a lot of friction when it came time to grade because they're like, do you have this document? And we said, no, it doesn't apply. Like, well, well, you've only got five out of six of your options evaluated. <laughs> exactly. You know, something like that. Yeah. Well, but in the same way we have the scientific process, this is why people try to teach the engineering design process because it's much easier to grade, right? Yes. You you say, well, what are the steps of the engineering design process? And you memorize that and you regurgitate that. And if you're doing a design process, then somebody says, well, did you go through all, you know, depending on whose version you're talking about, all three, four, five, six, seven, eight steps of the engineering design process, check, 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 you get points, you don't get points. If, if we go back to the action-centric model where it, you just do whatever you think you need to do in order to get done, well, that's much harder to grade. Yeah. I mean, we, we had all the steps, just not in the exact <laughs> process. They went, you know, did you prototype? Well, it was hard to prototype any individual portion. We had a limited budget, but we have all these simulation results. You know, we have the iterations of the sims, the different schematics. We have the different board spins we did of the project. So... You know, we had our initial design goals and our noise analysis, and we we had everything they were asking for. It just didn't fit nicely into their box. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I'd argue that even when you don't think you're following the process, I, I think lots of times we are. Mm-hmm. 
it's just either in our heads. We're, we're doing three or four, pro- three or four steps without even thinking about them. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, you're, you're at least I, lots of times I'll look at something and I'll, um, I'll think through, you know, do, do some research. I'll think through, okay, what do I remember about the standards? What do I remember about the process? What do I remember about the theory? Okay. That's sort of research. It's not really digging into things, but it's sort of research. And then mm-hmm. laying out an idea in my head and then prototyping it, seeing how do I think this is going to work? But, but it's all, mm-hmm. all mental in the course of about three seconds. Um, okay. And so I think we have a hard time defining that as the process. Okay. Well, I think you make a good point. And I think that, you know, anybody who uh, solves problems has some, some method, wh- whether it's all intuition or it is a rigid process, but they, they develop some means of getting the, the, the project done. Uh, so you, you very well may be right on that, Adam. Yeah. And w- one thing I do, you know, that's multiple design steps is I'm trying to compensate a regulator. Um, you know, I have my RC boxes hooked up, but you know, maybe there's a node where I don't have anything hooked up and I, you know, do I need a capacitor here? So what I have is, um, not popsicle sticks, but I, I cut the wood part off a Q-tip in our lab and I've epoxied down some through hole capacitors in like 22, 220 and like two nanofarad values and I'll say, I, I think I need a capacitor here. So I'm, you know, my constraint is I need to improve this transient response. Uh, existing idea, capacitor here, possible solution, you know, put it there. Is it, is it feasible and prototype it? Well, I, I pick up my popsicle stick and I jam it down on the node and did it get better? Yes. Okay, cool. I need a capacitor there. Does it have to be bigger than this? Well, I jump up two orders of magnitude. Yes, that helps. Or no, that was too much. It's somewhere in the middle. So that's like a whole design process just right there. And instead of doing pages of analysis or simulation, it's, you know, a a very quick crude iteration and then I can dial in the value later. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, there's a process process to my madness, but to someone who's not as you know dialed into what we're doing or my system, you know, it just looks like I'm putting capacitors at random, and there's sure. there's no rhyme or reason to it. But they don't see what I see. You know, I, I got the in man. <laughs> <laughs> you do you have the knack? Yes, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm one with the <laughs> matrix of regulator compensation <laughs> in terms of quick and dirty. If you ask me to do a state space or anything like that, I'll run away. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's a method I'm following, but it's a self-devised method that if I had to, you know, try and go through these seven steps and say how, you know, putting a popsicle stick with a cap on it to a node fits in, it's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> there's a method to yeah. my madness, but I don't, I don't know if my madness fits into a method. It's, it's not a two-way function. It's one to one way. <laughs> right. Well, uh, for those that may have made it all the way through engineering school, as I did, without ever being told what the engineering design process was, uh, let me uh, briefly list the, I think it's seven or eight steps here, that there are multiple definitions of this. So this is just one of many definitions. They're all sim- somewhat similar. Um so the first step often is determine the design constraints or define the problem. So you should go out and figure out what it is you're trying to do. Uh, number two is research existing issues and potential solutions. Uh, number three is conceptualize or develop a possible solution. Four is check feasibility 
this also may also be considered creating an initial design to see if things work. Uh, prototype, build a functioning model. Now, this may be a software model, uh, but uh, you, you try to see if, if your idea works. Six, uh, test the prototype. Seven, evaluate your solution path. So once you're done with your prototype and you have some results, you go, are we going in the right direction, the wrong direction? Uh, and then if, if you're going in the right direction at some point, you say, well, we're going to make a detailed design. Uh, you sort of clean up everything and make that detailed design. And then, uh, then you usually have to do some work to get yourself into production if you're making a, a manufactured product uh, that requires additional cleanup. Now, obviously, again, as, as all the, these definitions list, this is considered an iterative process, and so you may spend several times going between design the pro- uh, define the problem and research existing issues, and you, you may never get out of step one and two uh, until you've made several iterations to allow you to move on to step three. But having heard that, do you still feel like uh, you follow a pretty rigid design process? I'm, I'm still going to say yes. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it rigid, but it's not very flexible. <laughs> Okay, uh, and as a whole, it fits. You know, I mentioned my capacitor laying method as kind of mad, but churning out new chips and the the validation process and everything, it, it definitely fits into this. Our constraint is stuff to pass Intel spec. Our problem was the old chip was good, but it did a few things wrong, so we're going to fix it. And you know, there's our existing ideas and possible solutions right there. Yeah, you know, the things we didn't couldn't do or wouldn't do for the first chip are they they now feasible for this second chip you know what's our schedule what's our budget yada yada mm-hmm. it, it, it fits pretty well into that yeah well i i noted in the in the videos i watched that kid video that i watched and they they made the emphasis on that it when you you test your prototype and then have to redesign based on that that you may have to do this four or five Six times or even more. Was this a vampire who said, ah, 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 a lot? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was not. But uh, And I saw a, a couple of written documents that were similar that, that this seems to be the issue uh, when you're trying to explain engineering to uh, youngsters is getting them to not give up when their first idea doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's definitely important. It's also, you know, you can't, you got to say that with a straight face and not laugh because, geez, I don't know when I'd ever get six times to get a design right. <laughs> well, but experience will help you. Oh yeah, definitely narrow in. You know, even your your capacitor on a stick. I mean, I'm guessing that you generally have a pretty good idea where to start. Yes, but um, I mean, you know, even as a new guy, where you get some leeway, it, it someone steps in before you get to four or five or six times. It's okay. We let you try it once or twice, but you know, there's money on the line, so. Yeah. Learn something, but try to keep up. <laughs> Step out of the way. But the process is always getting reset too. Yeah. As you know, the as the spec changes with you know, I mean, your customers and even internal customers or managers are always going to be evolving the spec on you, which is always at some level going to reset where you are. So you're always iterating off of. You know, even if it's rigid, you're still always going to be iterating off of an impartial design mm-hmm. or that incomplete design. Mm-hmm. Step back, Carmen. 
if you were doing it in a computer simulation, and I'm assuming you simulate, and I don't know if that's true, yes. you would get four or five or six different iterations there, though, right? Yes. Uh, but I guess would that still be in the feasibility initial design stage? Or- I don't, to me, that's a prototype. It's an electronic digital prototype, but it's still a prototype. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess it depends on where you, you put everything in. You know, I, I consider a... You know, a prototype like first silicon and, you know, you get a metal spin if you're lucky, a full mask spin uh, to redo it. So it's two, maybe three different spins, but simulation is considered, quote unquote, free. And you, that's that's still <laughs> the feasibility stage and conceptualization. Yes, if free if, if someone's not having to pay your salary. Well, yeah, I mean, it costs time, but, you know, it. it well, I guess it depends on what kind of sim you're trying to run, but <laughs> if, you, if you're focused on one area of the design, you know, some new current source or whatever, that's that's typically only a handful of transistors and passives. You can you can simulate that all day and get a hundred hundred sims in or something. You know, it's not uh, it's not like it's trying to do a, a full chip you're trying to iterate on. Then then it's different. You can only do a few mm-hmm. sims. So yeah, sim would be a prototype. Right, mm-hmm. and I think that the area between feasibility and um, detailed design, at least my opinion is, in practice, that ends up being iterative in and of itself. That you've got a, a to do a, a, an initial design, you're going through these processes, and then your next step up, you're going through these processes again, and, and you're you're narrowing in. At least that's. Uh, that's the way things work around my office. Mm-hmm. We've got our, our crammed copy, and, and we'll go through that whole thing, and we'll look at different versions, and we'll simulate elements and, and see how that works. And then the next one, okay, now we're now we're having to up our resources. Now we're having to spend a lot more time on each iteration, so we better be doing less of them because we've already eliminated some of these big, broad-stroke elements mm-hmm. with our, our crayon level drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the the key thing to uh, you know, if you're going to teach the process as you iterate through. Yeah, don't give up for failure, but you're, you're supposed to be narrowing down each time. You're not supposed to start completely over. You're supposed to learn from your uh, your uh, your previous iterations. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So if if with youngsters, the problem is getting them not to give up. You don't want them to give you know feel uh, that that just because their design didn't work that they're a failure. It's part of the process that you have to face, you know, the failure of your design and, and uh, continue improving on it. So one of the things, one of the areas that's always interested me is when engineers are doing design work, what is the emotion they are going through? And so I'm only a, a, you know, one data point, but I know that like when I sit down with a new design that I'm going to work on, I'm very excited about it. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm anxious to get to the putting the pieces together and learning about new technologies and new, uh, you know, manufacturing methods or what, you know, whatever it is I'm, I'm having to work on. I'm excited about the learning experience uh, and I'm excited about putting it all together. And I have to say that pretty much holds through through most of the design uh, process where for me, the, the emotions become less happy is the recognition that at some point I have to let go of this thing and I have to turn it over to other people. And at that point, my baby is out of my hands and is going to get built. And at that point, I can't pretend like it's going to be perfect anymore. 
you know, it, it starts getting manufactured. It starts getting built. I get calls. Hey, did you remember to, uh, to put a, a polish on this surface? Oops, forgot that. Oh, did you remember to, uh, you know, to grind this surface before you plated that? Oh, no, didn't do that. You know, you, and then you have to go through the debug process and, and inevitably, no matter how much time you spend on it, uh, at least the type of machinery I was designing, you get other people around seeing it working and they're going to have ideas. Oh, you should have done this and you should have done that. And you have to, you know, sort of bite your tongue and go, well, where were all these wonderful ideas six months ago when we were in the concept phase and, and you had, you sat at this ta- same table and had nothing to say. Now, are these other engineers or are these people who can kind of steer your design? So management, sales, et cetera? Both. Because those are the ones that are awesome, right? Towards the end of the design when somebody throws a wrench into it and says, oh, you know, it would be really great if it did X. Yeah. Well, uh, creeping featurism is what we call that. Yeah. But, oh, it's just, it's, it's just, I mean, I am smarter by the time I get to the end of the design, right? Uh, I have cleared out in getting from the, you know, vague concept to a working machine. I've cleared away a lot of the, you know, the uh, the brush and the shrubbery so that we can get a clear shot at, at what this thing needs to do and how it can do it. And so, yes, it should be much easier for somebody to make improvements. And, and it's hard not to, if you're sitting in a meeting and you have a good idea, it's hard not to say, well, you could have done this. Uh, it's just kinder when you, you couch it in some, some conciliatory uh, wording so that it doesn't, it doesn't sound like an accusation. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Likewise. <laughs> So that's that's my experience, sort of the emotional process I go through uh, when I'm doing design work. How about you guys? Uh, I would say my emotions basically dither between elation and dread. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that which I do not know causes me dread, you know, and when something finally when transitions between not knowing and knowing, it's elation. You mm-hmm. know, the first time you apply a waveform, uh, and it matches up with your simulation perfectly, or you know, you were struggling with with specifying one particular part, and you know, finally the day comes, you unbox the brown thing and or the brown box, and throw it on your circuit board, and it works exactly how you simulated. Because I mean, the timelines are always really drawn out and agonizing. You know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is going to work, and I'm not going to find out for two weeks until this vendor ships it. Mm-hmm. So, and have and have you been through the emotion of? I'm sure you have, but uh, you think you have it all sorted out, and you know you're going through your calculations, you're going through your design, and you find that one thing that invalidates, you know, much of what you've done up to then. Oh, have I been there, or how yeah. do I feel when that happens? Either, both. <laughs> Uh, so that goes back to what I initially said. It's always transitioning from not knowing to knowing. <laughs> and so, you know, while you may, I always feel a sense of relief when I fa- when I find out that I'm wrong. Hmm, okay. You know, when I find out that I've drastically underscoped something or that my model was wrong, because generally I'm pretty frustrated at that point as to why something is not behaving the way I expect it. Mm-hmm. And so finding the point where I'm wrong is actually quite happy because it means at least I don't have to waste any more time, (laughs) you know, on a path that isn't going to work. Sure. I'll have two more emotions that I go through regularly. Uh, Okay. Rage. (laughs) 
<laughs> when when you're trying to design something cool and you're happy about like the new little bit you get to do, but then one of your building blocks breaks for some unexplained reason, you're like, this is a solved problem. I shouldn't have to be doing this right now. This isn't what I wanted to do today. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you got to go back through and troubleshoot that. Uh that that may or may not end in elation. If it failed for a cool reason, uh, you know, then you've learned something. But if it was something stupid or, you know, it mysteriously starts working again and you can't replicate the problem, then you still the rage is there. Uh uh-huh. mm, sure. <laughs> and then you're like, Well, now I gotta work later, you know, push over tomorrow because I didn't get anything done today. Uh yeah. and then I don't know. So every now and then I'll personify a problem and it's like, I take it personally that it's not solvable. And then I, I double down and, you know, start, start attacking it from all directions. Any way I can think of, you know, is it related to my layout? Is it related to this, that, the other thing, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's an emotion personification, but it works now. I'm defi- I'm defining it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I certainly know that when I'm in a similar situation, I become almost obsessed with finding whatever the detail was, even if it's not that big a deal. Uh, once I've found that problem, I just can't let go of it. Mm-hmm. And very rarely works out the problem you always want to solve is the one that needs to be solved, you know, to move the project <laughs> along and, you know, finish it out. There's always some niggling little bit that may or may not go anywhere that you're like, I just, all right, I don't care about the rest of this. We don't need to ship any units this Christmas. Uh, <laughs> tickle me Elmo. That's why there's a shortage of tickle me Elmos today. Uh, <laughs> you know, I want to figure out what happened here. Sure. Yeah. Why Why did our production, you know, we were out of control, but we were out of control producing more for two hours. Why did that happen? Let's research that. And, you know, maybe they don't care. They're like, whatever. We don't need that. Right. Right. Just so, move on. So that's so that sense of curiosity that they say they want all engineers to have. Only when it's convenient. They want it on a there switch. There we go. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yep. That's right. What What about you, Adam? What are your... Uh, what is your emotional range during a design process? Um, you know, I, I I think I tend to be pretty flat keeled or even keeled. Um, and, and maybe as perspective, I'm typically working semi-inactively on 30 designs, somewhat actively on about six mm-hmm. at any given time. So, it's not like I have this project I've been working on for nine months and it's almost done and it's my baby and I get to hand it off. Sure. Um, it, it's one of the many in my queue. So when, when I get to have it done and hand it off, it's actually, uh, I enjoy that cause I get to check it off my list. Mm-hmm. I get my little, uh, little, uh, dopamine hit. <laughs> right. <laughs> from, from making that check and, and, uh, move on to the next thing. Um, but I, I also tend to be more of a, um, a design manager than a design, a detailed designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, a team that deals with a lot of the, the intimate details and gets much more, uh, we'll all spend far more time on any individual design than I do. Um, and I'm working on the big picture. Okay. So. Although there, there is that emotion when you, you're done and everybody's put in the time and you've, you're ready to go. And then somebody comes to you and says, Oh, well, three weeks ago we made this change. <laughs> what you just did is useless. Yeah. Start again. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's called uh, frustration or rage. It's it's a little. Uh, I, I'm not sure. A little of both. <laughs> um, but that's more about um, um, project management than it is design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so let me uh, propose one last question uh, before we wrap this up, and that is, I I note from some of the uh, surveys that I read and and some of the uh, outside reading that I've done about uh, our our younger engineers, you know, mostly our our uh, millennials and the post millennials that are coming into school now, and there is a real desire to change the world, you know, to do something that's really big, and. Uh, as heroes, a lot of these people look at the, uh, you know, the great tech leaders, the Elon Musk's and the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates. And that's, you know, the people that were sort of running stuff from the business side. And uh, my perspective is that, yes, we need those wonderful people uh, to change the world, uh, but they did so. There's relatively few people that are going to run, you know, the large Fortune 500 businesses. And my world is a lot of detail work sitting there for hours going through one item, at, you know, one print at a time, checking to make sure that this thread matches that tap or that bolt, uh, that the drill size is correct for the thread I'm trying to tap, something like that. Making sure that the cut sheet for the raw materials is the same as the, the finished dimensions, you know, that they, they match. Hour after hour of checking that stuff, hour after hour of making sure that if I'm going through a program that I've considered all the... Uh, you know, all the various possibilities and, and the paths that, that uh, can happen. And I, I, quite honestly, I don't mind that tedium. I, it, because in the process of putting together the design and knowing the design was done right, that gives me my happiness. I'm, I'm okay doing that. But I just wonder about uh, your thought about how we sell engineering to people as though everybody with a STEM degree is going to go out and quote unquote, change the world. Get them into their first job and break their soul. <laughs> uh, as you are aware, I'm sure there are a lot of engineers that are really frustrated once they get out in into their first job. I'm not saying yeah. they're all that way, but there are a lot of them are really uh, baffled by what's going on in, in the world. Well, I mean, how do you fight a myth? And how do you fight a, use, a useful myth? Right? Because a lot of people show up wanting to be Bill Gates, Elon Musk, et cetera, or Iron Man for that matter, Tony, you know, Tony Stark. Sure. And that's just not reality. But, you know, every profession people show up that way, right? Sure. So it's it's not reality. And even, even if you look at the people that you mentioned, by the time we heard of any of those people, they weren't doing engineering anymore. Like at some point, both Bill Gates and Elon Musk transitioned from – engineers to people who made a high level go to Mars kind of decision, build a rocket kind of decision versus, Hey, well, how should we build our rocket motors? You know, and really delve into that. None of those people are involved in those kinds of decisions, but we imagine that they are right. Well, I don't know if we imagine them. I I have trouble seeing other people, other people do like the people who like, aren't yet in the engineering profession, even those that have a certain level of 
you know, training in it. Still, the people who idolize Elon Musk in an irrational way believe that, like, you know, he's designing every rocket kind of crap. Mm-hmm. And it's just not reality. You know, being one of those uh, those millennials that you mentioned, and just between me and the people I know and, and um, of my age, I don't see that that belief that we're all going to change the world in these grandiose ways. I, I think it's a, to be honest, I think it's a, a um, overgeneralization of, I, I do believe that there is a desire in general to improve the world. Um, but, you know, I argue that every day, if I haven't improved the world just a little bit when I go home from my job, I haven't done my job, but it, it it's maybe immeasurable. And I think that's more the reality of the majority of those generations beliefs. Um, Carmen, do you concur or am I um, full of it? Uh, I don't know if I've ever felt that made the world a better place when I leave work, but on the whole, yeah, I agree. <laughs> It's also not unique to the millennials or any other, you know, any particular generation. Young people want that. Young people of every generation want that. Yeah. You know, this, you know, 1999, 2009 is not all that different than 1969. Mm. If anything, I imagine this generation is actually a little bit more jaded than previous generations. If not, they're not paying attention. (sighs) I think I've seen a few Reddit threads along that line of discussion where they basically they print the articles written by each generation about the next generation going all the way back to like the 1860s Mm -hmm. about how each generation basically has the same faults (laughs) (laughs) each coming generation has the exact same faults and people just don't recognize that they're the faults that they had yeah and and I agree with you Brian that in order to get those who will be really successful as, as STEM professionals into the field, you have to talk up STEM professions to get people into it. Now, whether it's a good decision for everybody, obviously it won't be a good decision for everybody. Uh, there'll be those that really thrive. There'll be those that struggle. There'll be those that, that really find it uh, not to their liking. But uh, society needs those STEM professionals. So what, are, what is society, society supposed to do about it? Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a, uh, uh, depending on, on one's uh, job and one's field, seems to be a lot of latitude in exactly in how zealously we follow what is proclaimed to be the engineering design process. For some of us, it's, a, it's more a step-by-step process. For others, it's a do whatever you have to do to get the job done. But it, it's certainly an exciting and uh, fun part of being an engineer. So what do you say, guys, that uh, we wrap this one up and uh, – get together in a couple of weeks to make another podcast. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Great talking to you guys. All right. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our musical introduction is by John Trimble and our concluding theme by Paul Stevenson.